And next week, we continue our immersion worship services. But I, I, I want to talk about the, the series that I'm bringing to you this month. Because this month is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It was in, 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 19, in 1517 that Martin Luther, who was very displeased personally, and that is where the history kind of focuses in his own personal satisfaction and his own quest for faith. But the reason why he was dissatisfied and the reason why Luther was also engaging in a personal quest of faith was because there was a current in the community in Germany where he worked and lived of dissatisfaction with the way the church was dominating, literally dominating every aspect of life, including government, including civil war. There was no division. Uh, so, in a way, he voiced the, the, the discomfort that many people were feeling, but instead of turning it into a political issue, he basically turned it into a spiritual issue. And I think that was the, the, the gift that God gave us, that it did, the Reformation did have political implications. The whole concept of a nation, as we know it today, is a birth out of the Protestant Reformation. The whole idea of sharing the wealth, whether it is through communism, socialism, or capitalism, is a result of the thinking of the Protestant Reformation. But Martin Luther was not a proponent of any of those ideas. Those were consequences that others who study him and others who were with him expanded throughout the history. Martin Luther believed, and Martin Luther never wanted to create the Lutheran church, interestingly enough. He never wanted to do that. He wanted his home church, he wanted his church, the one that he was born in, baptized in, to rethink its ways, to rethink its purposes, to rethink the way they were speaking and dealing with people. Maybe 300 or 400 years too late. Because yet the church in the early thousands, it was still shapeable. And what happened was something very interesting happened historically. Originally, the church respected what about God? What did God leave behind in, in, in the medieval church? We have the Bible. By the Middle Ages, we have a Bible, right? So what happened was, that the church believed that the Bible was central to what we call today our life and our faith. And at some time during the year 800 to 900, the Bible became secondary to tradition. Meaning tradition was the ways of the church, the doctrines of the church, the regulations of the church, the perspective of the church. Flat earth, by the way. And that became more important than the Word of God. Can you believe that Martin Luther, who had a doctorate in theology by 1517, he had never seen a Bible in his life? A doctor in theology and had never had a Bible 
in his hands. It was when he went to a retreat when he thought he was going crazy that the prince in Wittenberg told him, no, no, his mentor told him, go, go into a retreat into this monastery and pray and seek the Word of God. Word of God, I know all about it. I'm a doctor, isn't it? And there, there was a crusty old Bible chained to the walls of the castle so that nobody would steal it. Remember, no printing press yet. It was coming up very soon, but not yet. Wittenberg was already tinkling and tinkling. But that was it. And it was in Latin. So he knew the language. And he read and he stumbled over a verse that surprised him that said, The just shall live by faith alone. And he began to think about that one. And that broke his mind. It broke his understanding. It broke his heart because he began to see the demands of the church, not only the emotional demands, the, the, the allegiance immeasurable to the church, and yet he also saw the abuse, the excess, the immorality of a church that was there. Luther was also, believe it or not, what we would label today, Bipolar. <laughs> yeah. So when he got angry, his friends would have to hide him in the castle and lock him up. Seriously, this is how the way he got well. <laughs> lock him up. He's not making sense. Uh, we should do that sometimes with some people, right? That can begin to make some sense. And Luther and Calvin were friends. One was German. One was what? French. French. Do you know the King James Bible, right? When, when was it started? In 16 what? 16? 11. In 1560, there were two Spanish monks who decided to translate the Bible into Spanish. That's the Reina Valera that we have in Spanish. That's kind of like King James kind of thing historically. And they were persecuted by the church because they did the undoable. They were reformers, though they were Catholic, they were reformers. And they translated the Bible into Spanish and they were persecuted to death. But they ran away from Spain and one ended up in Geneva with Calvin and the other one ended up with Luther in Germany. Both became translators in Spanish of both of Calvin and Luther's uh, uh, writings. Should you come to my house, you will have the privilege to see some of those documents in my library that some of my colleague pastors says that I have a bourgeois library. A bourgeois library. But let's listen to the word of the Lord because what happened was, even though there was some political change and economic changes, Calvin and Luther kept it in Scripture. And their goal was to, to teach us a simpler way of practicing our faith. Almost a, a way, a, a biblical way of practicing our faith where community was not denied, but individualism came to play a part also in that process. So they basically talked about the five solas. That's what you have in your cover. And they summarized the entire doctrines of the Reformation into five solas or five slogans, five statements, by grace alone, by Scripture alone, glory to God alone, 
in Christ alone and by faith alone. What does that mean back then? What did it mean back then? What does it mean today? There are similar meanings but very different applications, may I suggest. And today, I would like to begin with the idea of grace alone. And before I do that, I would like to read scriptures. You will find the scriptures in your worship guide in the third or back page of it. I am reading the second chapter of Ephesians, which is a letter written by Paul to the people in, in Turkey back then called Ephesus or a, a city in Ephesus, Asia Minor. So he's writing to them, uh, and, and, and as he writes to them, he is letting them know from the beginning of the book who they are in Christ. We had a little glimpse of that as we claimed who we are in Christ in our assurance of forgiveness, and we're going to see some of that here again. Listen to and for the word of the Lord as I read out of Ephesians chapter 1, I mean 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word of the Lord. The idea of grace refers specifically to the idea that we are okay, that God... Uh, 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 has poured his smile on us, that God has offered favor on us, that God is no longer blaming us, that God has truly and totally forgiven us when we don't and will never deserve it. Now, when I say that we don't and we never deserve it, that hurts some fibers of our hearts, particularly our ego, our self kind of sense that I am good. Yeah, but we're broken. 
And, and what God is referring to is that we can't earn it. So God, by the richness of His mercies, as we read, by the fact that His love is all-encompassing and so huge that pours out of God's self into people, into God's creation, God then has saved us by grace. Not because we deserved it, but because God declared it. And there is a difference there. You see, grace refers to the idea that we're okay with God, that God's favoring and smiling towards us, that God has settled the score, that the hatchet is buried, even though we do not deserve it. Now, how then are we saved? And listen carefully to the question, because the question that I just said is the wrong question. But yet, it's the question that many people ask themselves, how are we saved? Some don't care because <laughs> they don't know what they're being saved from. That's fine. But the question shouldn't be, how are we saved? But how did God save us? Because it begins with God, who is the creator, who is the sovereign one, who is the immortal, as we sang, who is the invisible, who created us and not us ourselves. Here, again, requires humility to accept the idea that we are dependent on something, someone that we don't see. Yet, that person, that reality, that divinity is smiling towards us, is granting us the privilege of hanging out with Him because God decided it. And that is difficult to believe because we want to contribute to that salvation. So, the question is, how did God save us? Well, if you ask the question, how did I get saved, you will get the answer that you got saved because you went to a church maybe or you went somewhere. Somebody gave you an exchange theory. If you do this, you do that, then, then God will save you, that kind of stuff. Maybe you raise your hand. Maybe you walked forward and you saved and you got saved. How many of you have done that? Come on. We're a Billy Graham generation. Come on. Okay. That means you're not saying, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. In time and space, that's what happens. In time and space, I went to that church. In time and space, I listened to the guy speaking. In time and space, I kind of understood what the guy was saying. In time and real space, I thought about, hmm, maybe I should do something about this. In time and space, I raised, I, I, I heard the question. In time and space, I raised the hand. In time and space, I moved forward. In time and space, I prayed what's called the sinner's prayer. Okay. I do that in time and space. But where was God? A faith in action team, forgive me. You see, in time and space, we're doing all of that. But from God's perspective, God who's above us geographically, let's just say for the sake of it, who's in charge and sovereign uh, in time and space, I inspired you that morning to go to that place, kid. In time and space, I, with my spirit, convinced you to 
listen to that word. In time and space, my spirit and my word spoke to your soul. I decided that your soul was going to become alive, that you were going to understand the word, that you were going to get up, that you were going to get up there and pray that silly prayer. That's what they do. But the eternal scheme of places, God was in charge of even that time and space. Did you get it? If you don't, don't ask. <laughs> in time and space is one thing, but in the eternal realm of it all, God is and has been in charge. You see, when God says yes, it is a yes. When God gives you life, it's not just for a few months until you screw it up. It is eternal life. When God redeems you, He redeems you fully. When God heals you, He, he heals you holistically. When God saves you, He saves you completely. God's grace is not alone in the act of the redemption, it is also, as the Word says, it is sufficient because it is what God demanded and it is suffice and it satisfies God. Remember the scripture that we were reading? For God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting your sins against you, but rather putting them on Christ. That is grace. Instead of us pain, it was a substitutionary. You have this vicarious words and all this stuff in theology, but basically it means it was done on your behalf. It was done on your behalf. It is a sufficient because that's what God was satisfied. Now, is it efficacious? It's another big word. Efficacious comes from the theological idea. Is it irresistible? How many of you will say no to God forever and ever and ever? It's like a little drop of water that you don't hear it, but it keeps you up at night. <laughs> hound of heaven, hound me now. Hound of heaven, hound my soul and my heart. You see, the Spirit of God does what God asks and what God proposes. Does it accomplish a new life in you? You know that. Does it produce the life of Christ and the mind of Christ in your life? You must know that. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, was enough. It also cleanses us. It renews us. It places us in the realms of God. So why do we think like humans? We're above that. That's the new reality, you see. We are a new creation, so let us think with the thoughts of Jesus, with love and acceptance, tolerance, not division, bridges instead of walls, as I was saying last week. You see, God is not asking you to do some extra points by coming to church. Do you know that coming to church does not save you? How many of you know that? You better have that clear. As much as going to McDonald's every week doesn't turn you into a hamburger. Unless you jump in the mink grinder. You see, coming to church is not a negotiation. We respond to God's grace. That's why we come to church. Have that clear. We come to church because God is good enough in our lives that we want to know more about God. We want to hang out with some of God's people, not all of them. Couldn't handle that. Slowly, Lord. You see, you actually can't do or add anything to God's powerful, sovereign, 
sufficient and irresistible grace.